You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Today on Sprogcast, we've got lots to talk about. Our topic is non-binary birth with an in-depth interview with AJ Silver. That sounds like a mic name, doesn't it? Uh, when I, it's a great name. When I say it out loud. Uh, I'm also talking to um, Rebecca from the One to One Midwives. Uh, this is episode 53. I'm Mark Harris and this is Karen Hall. You're enjoying that too much, Mark. <laughs> Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin at pinterandmartin.com. They publish all kinds of brilliant books relevant to our work. I've currently lost my copy of Why the Politics of Breastfeeding Matter, so I'll be making the most of our Sprogcast 10% discount code. We also now collect sponsorship at patreon.com slash sprogcast, where you can sign up for badges, t-shirts and other exciting rewards. We always send out show notes the day before publication to our paid patrons, and they're released later in the week for everyone else. This month, we're also adding as exclusive bonus content for patrons only the full version of the interview with AJ Silver. Oh, the full version, because you cut all that interesting stuff out about culture and language, didn't you? Because it was um, too long for <laughs> the show. And I think some people want to listen to you and me speaking as well. How are you doing, Mark? I'm all right. Like, like you say, I've got a bit of, of a, a game show host vibe on today. I don't know why. Just feel up, up tempo. Well, people will love it. I don't know. They might. Some will be irritated. My wife, for one. <laughs> well, she doesn't have to listen. No, but she does have me around all day. Yes, at least I've only got you for an hour. Yeah, no, I'm feeling really good. <laughs> a bit tired after a weekend of training in Doncaster, but uh, feeling feeling good. Well, tell me about Doncaster. Well, it, I, I'm kind of going in a little bit of a different direction with the training. I've got two other trainers I work with. And what were you training in? Oh, sorry. I was delivering the birthing awareness three-step rewind process training, right. uh, which you know prepares birth workers to be able to support couples who label their experience as traumatic or difficult for them but this one was in someone's house there was only three of us and the training was intense for sure um, but the level of feedback uh, that was able to happen in that context was probably beyond what I've experienced before so I mm. thoroughly enjoyed it in fact I was saying to my wife it's it's amazing how tired you can get doing very little well you were having a much more responsive you know, exchange, I guess, with, with people when there's only three, four of you in the room. Oh, definitely. I mean, they actually learned in a triplet, you know. So they had an opportunity to have an experience of being the practitioner, to observe a practitioner and and an experience of being a, a client. So they were rotating around those three perspectives. And from the point of view of, you know, Kolb's learning theory, that's nigh on perfect, I think. In, in terms of having a good training experience. So uh, I liked it. And of course, when you're doing bigger trainings, you know, I've, I've trained up to 38 people before. You're not as involved. And, and of course, there isn't as much time for the interaction and questions and stuff like that. So, yeah, good experience. Yeah. Going to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. How much do you charge to do that? Oh, good question. So um, up to four people in the home. Uh, I charge the same amount as a, a general public training. So that's £265 each. If there are six people in the home, and that's pretty much pretty much the max um, that I can, 
you know work with in this format then it goes to 175 pounds each for the two days that's amazing value i think so such a rich experience anyway thanks for the advert karen (laughs) (laughs) so you always say to me that you're very busy in the summer and yet the first thing you said to me today is you're off to the cinema yeah, well, it's summer holidays, so I do try not to have too much work on. Um, but yeah, we're, we're going to see a film. What are you off to see? We're going to see Blinded by the Light. It's a song, song lyric, isn't it? Yes. Blinded a... by the light. Yeah, go on. Carry Sorry. on. No, it's all a no. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Yeah, it's a song written by Bruce Springsteen, but um, made famous by Manfred Mann and the Earth Band. Mm. And That was the version um, I was singing. The Manfred Mann one. Yeah. Well done. Um, <laughs> Go on. Sorry. Go on. Um, and it's about a teenager growing up. I think it's set in 1987. And this, this teenager is kind of going through that kind of finding his identity experience that you go through at that sort of age. Um, and I was 16 in 1987 and um, going through exactly the same thing and oh, um, came out of it exactly the same way having discovered Bruce Springsteen. So it just seems like the, the perfect film. And is that on general release? Because I've not heard of it. Yeah, it's in cinema. It's probably not massively, you know, it's not a Disney film. So I'm going to check that out. Right. We've got a really interesting discussion today, an interesting topic. Yeah, I I, I felt so. I, I mean, I met AJ Silver through Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I posted her article on the page which was, remind me, Karen, it was in the... Oh, it was in Ames, yeah. Yeah, that's right, well, on Ames, on their website. Birth Beyond the Binary. Yeah, that is on Facebook, and it'll be in our show notes for this. We kind of spoke for, I think, about 45 minutes. Honestly, education for me. Yes, I I felt like it was. Oh, a total education for me. We've done a LGBTQ episode before, haven't we? Yes. But this was a complete revelation for me in terms of how AJ um, talks about the issues that are experienced, you know, by the community. Um, In fact, it's inspired her to write a book and hopefully we're going to collaborate on that, you know, through Birthing Awareness Publishing. Um, But good conversation. I hope people enjoy it. Yeah, it was interesting. I felt like it was a bit less birth focused, but, Mm. you know, that in itself is something that we need an increasing awareness of of how that community experiences life in general as well as the birth. Yeah, I get that. There was a there was stuff about breast and chest feeding that yeah. I thought was really interesting. Yeah, and of course uh, they are a, a birth professional working as a doula within the community. Yeah. We had this discussion, I said about the pronouns and stuff, and I feel like I'm an old 50-year-old middle-aged man not really knowing how to... But, <laughs> but she has a good conversation in the interview about intent. Uh, and I think that's uh, well placed. Yeah. Of course, AJ is a doula in within uh, Mars's a broader community of doulas, um, and has found, as she says in the interview, that she's learned an awful lot about um, her own reaction to the non-white community. You know, the the black community. So, good interview. Yeah, it was a good interview. Do, do you feel like after doing that, there's anything you've changed in your work? Uh, nothing I've changed, but that yet, but there has been some inspiration. I mean, when AJ started talking about what's available out there in the literature, 
you know, in, in the book world, you know, beyond sort of like some niche books that you can get in, you know, LGBT bookstores, there's hardly anything out there on the non-binary specifics that she addresses. You know, she's writing a course to educate birth workers and now writing a book. In fact, having done this interview a week or so ago, there's going to be a book out there, I would guess, before the end of the year. That's cool. Much needed because they're the kind of books that Birthing Awareness wants to to publish uh, are books that are filling a sort of like a niche, uh, an area within the British market that that really isn't being served. I liked about being inclusive not exclusive because I feel like there's a lot of worry in the birth world often coming from the feminist perspective that the non-binary community seeks to erase women from birth by not using terms like breastfeeding yeah um, and not talking about um, biologically female body parts I don't even know if that was a correct way of saying it in this context and they talked about using this language in addition not instead yeah nice and that that's quite important for me well and i think it's quite important in the context of um a debate that can get very caustic mm. and and nasty in fact we talk about that in the interview yeah you, you know that it's um it's certainly a hot potato or potato but you can say it either way and that's fine <laughs> well either way <laughs> stop it shall we play the interview do it do it okay well good morning aj good morning mark hey thanks for uh, being willing to talk to us at sprogcast i really do appreciate it no worries thanks for inviting me so right right at the top of our um our discussion could you just tell me a little bit about yourself um the kind of work that you're involved with and and then we'll get on to your aims article that you know we posted to the page and everything uh, i'm a birth and postnatal doula i live in essex but i cover kent london and a little bit of hertfordshire too um i've been working with parents and children for nearly six years now i originally came into the birth and parenting world um, as a baby wearing consultant i trained with the school of baby wearing i run a sling library for nearly five years in south end and the surrounding area um and have found so many gaps in our support system especially with uh, breast and chest feeding locally so i thought what could i do and the postnatal doula seemed to fit the bill um, for what I was kind of already doing, you know, going to do home visits with people as a baby or a consultant, it would inevitably turn into, oh, you know, I can see or I can hear that your baby's got a, a, a tongue that was like my child and they said she was tongue-tied. You know, you have to be careful how you phrase these things. Um, and yeah, it would turn yeah. into, oh, you know, they're not sleeping and everything. It would turn into a bit of normal infant behaviour, information sharing. And I just yeah. thought I'd love to be able to do this in a more, you know, a more certified, accredited fashion. So I did the yeah. uh, training with Red Tent Doulas. At the start of this year, I did some further doula prep with Mars Lord at Abuela Doulas. So I'm an Abuela Doula as well as a Red Tent Doula, which is two Ooh. really, really <laughs> awesome organisations to be part of. Um, and I'm doing my training. I'm a trainee currently breastfeeding counsellor with uh, ABM. Uh, so but that takes about two years to complete. So that's not quite there yet but getting from it 
you said breastfeeding counsellor there and i notice i notice you know language is a bit of a, a pet a passion of mine mm. and your article in aims is very clear about language and the importance of it and we'll, we'll get on to that um mm. but, but you did say yourself you were finding there was a need for uh test feeding support mm -hmm. and and guessing there was a reason why you used the word chest feeding yeah so the the proper qualification that I'm doing with AIMS is called BFC a breastfeeding counselor um, so on a lot of my websites and stuff I'll put breast slash chest feeding um, but yeah. I felt like if I put breast slash chest feeding counselor that might imply that I've done specific training with this organization surrounding chest feeding rather than breastfeeding um yeah. so i don't I, I don't want to mislead people um and i don't want to say you know that this is a qualification that covers both of those parts i spoke to emma pickett at the um at the abm conference and stuff like that and it is a direction that they're wanting and trying to go in um but at the moment that's what the qualification i'm doing is called so i think it's important to be yeah, no, to be no, transparent no. with people yeah i totally get that but, but why the need for the distinction chest feeding um well as i talked about in the aims article some uh, trans people non-binary persons will find referring to their chest or breast area as breasts um will trigger dysphoria um oh. and that's that's when you know we feel a mismatch between what our bodies are what they can do our functions as our bodies um and how the world perceives us so breast although men can get breast cancer you know have the same breast tissue not in a larger but as a larger volume as, as some cis females for example but it's inherently a female or womanly thing um so some people will prefer it to be called chest feeding yeah no i get that so we we appreciate that that males females have mammary glands right mm -hmm. but yeah the, the distinction in language is really showing sensitivity uh for what might trigger that feeling of dysmorphia how do you say it this dysphoria. dysphoria yeah yeah so you, euphoria we all know about euphoria something yeah. makes you feel euphoric so this is the opposite of that for example yeah 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 so so we could we could use um uh, other other words than dis uh, dysphoria I guess that triggers any sense of discomfort trauma unhappiness yeah so it, you know a, a lot of trans and non-binary people who who bleed who have periods um, you know will also avoid you know things like feminine hygiene products um, you know because it's not just people who are feminine that have a monthly bleed that have a need for these products so there there's a lot of as i know you know a lot about and you talk a lot about there's a lot of incidentals within language that's sort of already into our common idiolect it's already in there in our lexicon so it's 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 hard to undo it but it's making mm. a, a common um sorry making a outright declaration that i have considered and i acknowledge and i support the people who don't fit into that normality that heterosis normative of the world yeah. um and that i have considered or i am open to the fact that those people need my products and services my support as well i got it so in in an ideal world inverted commas um, mm -hmm. products that are marketed as feminine products would mm. we would want those products to be marketed in a neutral way or 
So I think that when you're marketing products, I don't, I'm not saying that everybody who makes a product for men or women specifically has to go out and remove all gendered language. I don't think that that would improve, um, you know, the tiny little differences. So, for example, like the Equality Act of 2010 says that um, it's discrimination to treat a woman unfavorably because dot 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 because she's breastfeeding, because she's pregnant, because yeah. she's on maternity leave, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Scotland, being the forefront winners of equality and diversity that they appear to be emerging in at the moment in the last few years, they changed wow. it in 2005. The Breastfeeding Act is an offence deliberately to prevent or stop a person in charge of a child from feeding milk to that child in a public place so oh, that's, a ve- that's a very slight difference so that would also cover somebody for example using a supplemental nursing system or an sns that would also cover somebody from tube feeding you know you are giving milk to that child it's also inherent in its inclusivity of including adoptive parents or foster or so, you know anyone who's not a parent or a woman is now protected um, but it doesn't what it doesn't do is dilute the protection of women because that's a that's a key issue that a lot of people are worried about and rightly so so as in the aims article when i'm talking about um removing the you know the the word woman is not an option because so many of our laws focus on a woman's right to breastfeed uh the woman who births a baby is recorded as the mother on the birth certificate etc we need to rather than removing words we need to add to it that's how i see it working so rather than when you're marketing your feminine hygiene products rather than removing any mention of the word woman or female because the overwhelming majority of people who are going to be using and accessing your product or service are going to be those people we need to add to it to make sure that people know we've considered you you're on our minds we know that you're out there we want you we love you come and use our product or service because we acknowledge that you exist and need this product or service it's uh, it boggles me i find it quite simple in my head but then obviously i'm not in that system of cis heteronormality so whether that skews my view of the world or not i don't know but it it doesn't seem that difficult to me <laughs> yeah. I, I, you met what's that you 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 prefix um with the word cis c-i-s yeah can you explain to me because i i, I don't understand it Okay, well, cis is another way of saying not trans. So when you when people will use examples, they'll say natal woman or born woman or biologically woman, um, when actually what we're saying is they're not trans. Um, but by saying not trans is a way of othering trans people. So when you start segregating trans and non-trans or you know all of that you again you push the trans or the gender non-conforming people out of the way and say you're other you go over there we're you know you are in this bubble we're in this bubble um and what you're then doing is taking the pressure off the oppressed people the trans people the women by saying that i am cis if you declare yourself cis then what you're saying is i'm not trans but you're not forcing trans people to out themselves again that's a huge problem in society um and you're not forcing them to to again to out themselves because we know that trans women are trans men and non-binary people are at a higher risk of violence in the world sexual physical emotional so we're again we're taking the pressure off the oppressed i got it no i got it so it, it, are you are you willing to talk about your your, your own uh, experience yeah is, sure is that, uh, yeah yeah I, I, I mean I, i'm relatively safe i mean i um there's a lot of discussion about cis 
passing. So in the in the trans world, you talk about passing where you would walk down the street as yourself and you would pass for a cis person. Or you would be clocky, which is the opposite, where people would be able to clock that you're gender non-conforming or that you're trans. Um, so I have a male spouse. He's a six-foot-tall guy with a big bushy beard um, and I wear dresses and have got, you know, mid-length hair. I pass as a cis woman and my partner is a cis man. So I have safety in that aspect. And also to the fact that my, you know, my gender identity, there's no right or wrong way to be trans or non-binary, for example, but... I, to a passerby in the street, I have that safety net that until I spoke about it, that I would be relatively safe from those increased risks that we were talking about before. So I really don't mind talking about it because I think that we need, someone needs to talk about it to start these conversations because a lot of people, especially in the birth, breast and chest feeding world, it's a bit of an unknown. So yeah, I'm absolutely yeah. happy to talk about it. Yeah, okay. So, so how... Before I did this interview, I was concerned about my the words that I used <laughs> because you know, I'm a 55 year old white um, pseudo middle class man. By yeah, um, that, well, that's the bracket I'd be put in, right? Yeah. Um, so I have a, a many years of existing inside our, our cultural narrative. Mm-hmm. So a way yeah. of speaking is kind of it, it comes out. You know what I mean? So it is, and it is. Re- it is really entrenched and I get this a lot from people. They say, you know, oh, I, you know, I've not used these terms before and I've got to stop and think, especially when we talk about pronouns. Um, so yeah. that's about how you refer to somebody or to themselves when you're talking to them. So using the wrong pronouns, we know there's been research done that it cuts the cost of, uh, sorry, it cuts the risk by up to 65% of suicide by using someone's correct pronouns and their given name um so that that was that and that was the journal of adolescent health and 2018 yes so we know that it's not just polite it can be life-saving um but you're gonna get it wrong this is what i get it wrong you know i have trans and non-binary friends and it slips out and we can't help it depends in how it's done so right. to me, if somebody I've known and I know loves me and supports me, if it slips out, so my spouse, Adam, has this really endearing thing and he, when he says hello to me, he says, hello, beautiful lady. And he said it for a long time. Slips out sometimes still. And he, he doesn't mean to do it. He's just had that habit for 10 years that we've been together. Um, right. And he'll correct himself. And he's saying it less and less as time goes on. But that doesn't change the fact that it still goes in, in my stomach. It's like, you know, somebody calling you the wrong name or something. It's, it is a bizarre feeling. It's hard to explain what that feels like. And, it, right. and people do get it wrong. And that's okay. But it's, if you're doing it on purpose to insult somebody. So if you're saying, if there's an article about a trans woman, for example, and you're gender critical or a trans exclusionary radical feminist, and you're writing on there that he cannot have right. children because he is a man right. um, so, then that's violent you know yeah, that's it's a big difference it's inflammatory exactly so if it slips out and you get it wrong go oh dear sorry da, 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 and correct yourself um and you know be aware of it for next time but if it's slipping out completely organically you can't there's not a lot that you can quickly do to undo those years of living in this system and society 
Um, so you're going to get it wrong. Just accept the fact you're going to get it wrong, but be prepared to apologise, correct it, and quickly move on and try to do better next time. That's all really I, that I, we can ask. No, I do get that. But 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 if we if we were talking about, uh, of course, this this, uh, this feels dangerous to talk about. But but you, you know you know when, when you're talking to folk and they say something that could be interpreted as racist, for example, mm-hmm. and they and they correct themselves and apologise, yeah. the rest of it, mm-hmm. um, people go, oh, yeah, but you're really racist because it came out unconsciously. I think, again, I mean, I, a part of my abuela doula training, being one of the only white people on that course, that was really good at giving me an insight into that world. So, again, it's about acknowledging that the two worlds are different. I've lived outside of that world because I was born in a middle-class area. There was all My school was and my high school and then my university were almost pr- predominantly white, almost exclusively. So I, I can't organically know all that stuff. I can't organically know how... Uh, a, a black and Asian minority ethnic or indigenous person feels in my world because I've not been in that world. No, so I need okay. to take the, take the responsibility and take myself off and learn it. Um, no, I so get that, that I can be, I can be a better ally to those people. So I see it as a similar issue, straight cis heteronormative people who have lived their lives in these bubbles aren't necessarily going to know about these issues. It's not going to flow organically. It's not something you can learn just from sitting and observing. You need to get off your butt and do the work yourself if you want to be an ally to those people. Yeah. The issue, the issue becomes passivity. When, when Mars did the Sprogcast interview, it was the most significant one we've had, I think, in three years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I listened to it and, um, and, and felt pain because, because I realized, you know, I would champion equality, but hadn't done any work. Yeah, and I think I felt a lot of that as well. It's, it, it's not easy. If, you, if you're walking along and you're thinking this is really easy, then I don't think you're looking hard enough. Um, you know, and Mar- as Mars always says, and I use this a lot, I used it at the start of my AIMS article, it's not top trumps, it's not oppression top trumps, it's not, you know, it's not whether is the race issue as or more important than the LGBT issues, it's about saying that we all deserve safety, acknowledgement, inclusivity, championing, we all deserve yeah. these things, um, so, you know, it's not pie, yeah. you know, there's get- plenty to go around. <laughs> No, I get that. And, it, and in a sense, it's kind of layered because, you know, we, I would have thought most listeners uh, realize we live in a patriarchy uh-huh. and our, our cultural narrative is submerged in the patriarchy. It's, yeah. it's um, we're kind of soaking in it. So, you know, in terms of uh, women's rights, we're still not doing great, you, you know, as a, as a culture. Yeah. And, and, and then you escape. <clears throat> don't you to other minority groups exactly but i don't think there should be a, a downward cascade i think it should just be saying look these are the the world centers whiteness the world centers heteronormality they're the norms in our world it's yeah. you know they, they are everything else is as you said filtering down but i, I see it that if we're gonna if we're gonna go for equality and this again means it's forever going to be changing you people are saying lgbtqqia you know when are they going to stop adding letters good i hope they don't stop adding letters because it means that other people are getting their recognition they're getting their they're finally getting their name for who they are in their community 
So I think right. that we're always going to be learning. There's always going to be something that, oh, they keep changing this all the time. You can't say anything now without someone being offended. Good, because it means that we're learning how to be better allies. We're learning how to coexist better in the world. We're learning better to understand ourselves. So I think yeah. that that's really important to acknowledge that it's not a pain in the ass to be told this is no longer, we don't say, um, you know, we don't say queers anymore is derogatory, but it's okay for queer people to say queer because we're reclaiming that language that was used as a weapon against us so it's you know there's there's a lot of similar crossovers there's a lot of shared oppression and it's about saying we're all not normal we're all not what the world centers um and so how can we how can we help each other and uplift people so i did do a piece on uh black and asian minority ethnic lgbt people so they're at the cross section of two um poles of risk um so we know that lgbt persons are more likely to suffer with postnatal depression and we know that black and asian minority ethnic people are more likely to suffer obstructive violence so those people who are part of my community and part of the uh, bane community are at an enhanced risk so it's not yeah. just about saying queers are at risk bane people at risk and they're completely separate issues because LGBT people are BAME people, BAME people are LGBT people. You know, there are women within the LGBT community that, yeah. um, that you know, identify as women who are women and they're obviously oppressed by the patriarchy as well. So rather than yeah. separating everyone out into their little boxes, why don't we yeah. all, in a utopian society, as you said at the start, an ideal, an ideal world, why don't we come together and realise that we're all being oppressed in a different way by the normalities and the systems in place in our society and just work to throw it all in the bin because it ain't working. <laughs> is, there, is there a sense, though, AJ, that, that, that coming up with new designations just enhances the fragmentation? I think there's a, there is some of that in the LGBT community and there's a lot of racism as well in the LGBT community. So it's, it's, it's not helpful to anyone to pretend it doesn't exist. Um, I think that there's a growing movement within the LGBT community. We, we identify as queer or we identify as LGBT because I think there's a hard, there's a, there's a hard line to tread with wanting to have our own identities as in wanting to be pan or bisexual. There's a big debate about that. Um, um, so the argument is that bisexuals, bi meaning two, i.e. attracted to women or men. And yeah. then being pansexual is uh, being attracted to anyone, basically, <laughs> regardless of their gender identity or expression. Um, but yeah. bisexual people um, say that, you know, well, that's not the case. Bi means more than one. So, you know, and there's a big division on... Uh, if you're bi, does that mean that you're transphobic or that you're non You know, you wouldn't date a non-binary person. And I think at the end of the day, those those importances are really different. Are really important to some people. So it. it's really important that they identify in a way that's inherent in its naming that they are accepting of people who don't conform to the gender binary. So. Okay. It's, it's a hard line to tread. I think we're all, we're all share that same oppression that we're not cis and we're not hetero. Um, but yeah. the differences can be really important within those, within those specific communities. So I think, again, it's a hard line to tread, but I do see where you're coming from. Yeah. I, I, I mean, discussions within this kind of area are considered fraught, aren't they? I mean, there is a lot of hostility. <laughs> Yeah, with, <laughs> yeah, with, yeah. There is a lot. The community, you know, and you know, Jermaine Greer um, has 
has said some some very caustic things, hasn't she? Yeah, the, I think the more that, um, you know, more people are identifying as LGBT than ever before. We know that from stats from Stonewall, but especially yeah. the younger generation, because people are, the more we discuss it, the more people go, oh, right, bloody hell, there's a name for that. You know, oh, that's my people. I'm going to go to my people. I learn more about who I am and everything like yeah. that. So that's great. That's, a, that's a, a product of the internet. That's a product of people coming out more. Um, so, and the work done by all those people decades ago to give us our rights and our ability to come out. So we're very thankful to them. But yeah. I think the more and more that people come out and the more and more people realize that they're not straight or they're not cis or they're not heteronormative, there's going to be more people that go, hang on a minute, <laughs> and, want to, you know, and want to discuss this or want to question it. But it yeah. becomes a problem when that questioning or discussion is met with violence and is met with yeah. de deniability um, yeah. and in particularly in the uh, breast chest feeding world in the birth world in the pregnancy and baby world there is a big undercurrent of transphobia yeah. um, I would and, say. yeah i would uh, say as well so it's, uh, it's it's difficult but jen jen Muir from badass births coins my my tagline if you will as we're here we're queer we procreate get used to it and i think that <laughs> that, that you know and i've started using that now as uh, on a lot of pages um and i think that that's what it boils down to at the end of the day you know you don't have to include us in your product or service that you're marketing but if you want to if you want to be an ally if you want us to use your products and service if you want us to know that we're able to come if we're safe with you we're able to come and get that advice product or information then you need to be visible you need to stand up and say if you're expecting your first child rather than hashtag first time mums or something you know you yeah, can put all it. those hashtags you can put those hashtags in there for sure but you know on instagram the hashtags for non-binary parent and gender queer parenting queer parenting lgbt parenting they've got not as huge amount of followers or tags as obviously the heterosexual one but they're there in their tens of thousands so if you're yeah. worried about reach or anything like that then you're gonna in fact you're gonna reach more people um but yeah. you don't have to this is the point it's not being forced on you don't have to accept these oh, people God. but make that clear as well you know we don't we don't want to get halfway through a journey with someone and realize that we're unsafe or that they question our gender yeah. or our ability or our sexual orientation um because we're at risk we queer people are at risk there's more research yeah. done about lesbian parenting and stuff and some in gay parenting and not not an awful lot in non-binary or transgender parenting or people who birth and have their feed their babies but we can't back it up with science, but what we can do is we can make a reasonable assumption that there's more lesbians that are registering babies year on year. Yeah. Um, so there will be more, there's more people coming out as LGBT year on year. So we can make an assumption that there's more gender queer people, more LGBT people who, who are birthing and feeding their babies. So if you want to support yeah. us, great, then stand up, put a flag up, make it known on social media, make it known in your mission statement on your website and everyone that you talk yeah. to that you support us. If you don't, in the nicest way possible, get out of the way. <laughs> yeah. I want to uh, end, end off with a question about safety. Mm -hmm. uh, can you give us some idea of very practical ways that those of us that work within um, the birthing world, you know, inside the NHS, and anywhere that um, uh, people giving birth are giving birth with their partners, mm -hmm. 
uh, how can they move towards um, creating uh, a, a space that feels safe uh, to those that fall within the categories that you've mentioned? Simply acknowledging that it's a possibility. When I was, um, I'm writing um, an LGBT competency course, and when I put out um, a request to anyone in the LGBT community, can you give me some examples of uh, microaggressions or aggressions that you've experienced because of your gender identity or sexual orientation by healthcare professionals? The ones that come back would just boggle your mind. So we had a, uh, a lesbian couple who went to an appointment, um, a postnatal midwife appointment, and the midwife was like, you know, as most people do, I've experienced this as a doula, who are you? Or the latter is, show everyone go round the room and introduce themselves. And what they're really thinking is, who the fuck are you? And yeah. so they <laughs> did that. And the, rather than asking those very simple, non-aggressive questions, the midwife was like, oh, have you, who have you come with your mum? And this was a couple with like four years apart. These two women were oh, only four no, years no. apart. And then, oh, and then they laughed. And they said, oh, is that your sister? And it was like, so you immediately thought it was more possible for the person yeah. who's come with me to be my mum than it was that we would be in a relationship. And again, yeah. so Trevor McDonald talks about in his book, Where's the Mother, talks about having to argue with security guards on, on the video intercom that maternity units have to be able to access it because he's a dude with a beard, um, you know. And so obviously having to stand in a busy hospital corridor arguing with security guards why you need to access the maternity system. So the first step, I think, is acknowledging that it's a possibility that you yeah. will take care of somebody who isn't mum or dad and who isn't doesn't fit into the boxes on your forms. We we yeah. we exist in so many variants um, that it's never you're never going to be able to pin it down on a, on on a piece of paper. So I think that's the first step, acknowledging that we are here, we're queer, we birth, we procreate, right. get used to it. So that's the first step. The second step would then be language. So as I yeah. talked about, rather than asking, are you the mum, are you the sister, are you the auntie, the friend, or whatever. And who have you brought with you today? You know, that's a really non-aggressive way to ask, you know, yeah. what, who, who's in the room. And I'm sure you do that all the time as a midwife. Um, yeah. You know, I, there's no quick fix to how this is going to get solved and people are going to stop being at further risk of, uh, you know, obstetric violence or violence at the hands of the general public and everything. But the first step definitely is acknowledging that people will birth and will yes. be, become parents in the not normal ways of society. And yeah, there will yeah. be people who have more than one partner. There will be people that have no partner. You know, it's worth acknowledging that, you know, it's not always going to be a mum, a dad, a man and a woman who come together to make this baby. Um, acknowledging that and doing some research, doing some work on your own biases, your own assumptions, that's yeah. really the first step that we need to take towards being you know equality and being seen and normal in the birthing yeah. world it's a major step a major educational task yeah it is and that's why I, I, there was no there's no lgbt competency course in the uk there's a couple of there's states gonna be. There's going to be. be. Hopefully, there will be one. Um, I'm trying to pull together different birth workers. We have um, a trans man midwife. We have uh, non-binary birth workers, including myself and the queer doula, Nanny Kimbo. We have uh, Mars Lord is going to be helping us a lot with the cultural competency. We're trying to yeah. pull together a real variety of people that will be able to represent, hopefully, a wider spread 
of the of the differences and the challenges that are faced by people with birth outside of the cis normality but mm. it's proving a lot of a challenge to try to obviously to get this down into words it's a really emotive topic it's something that not all queer people are willing or want to discuss because of the trauma that it's caused them um and whether it will be how it will be received as well in the birth world is a big it's a big issue for people not wanting to come forward people wanting to be anonymous when they give these information because again it's forcing people to out themselves which again can put you in harm's way so it's it's going to take a lot of work i think do you want the listeners to get in contact with you yeah if anyone's sitting there thinking uh you know i've experienced um any of the difficulties or different difficulties and i've had time to briefly mention then definitely do send me an email you can find me on facebook or instagram under birthkeeper doula um or on my website as well if you google birthkeeper doula it'll come straight up and get in touch and discuss how you feel that you know your your experience needs to be part of an education example rather than it doesn't have to be this person from this town called xyz it can be anonymous um but we we really need more people to to give us these examples so that we have a better base knowledge for people who want to change what they're doing in particular we need more voices from the black asian minority and ethnic community to come forward because as i mentioned earlier they're at a double-edged sword of risk um so we definitely need to make sure that we're inclusive in our action um, and in our education aj thanks for spending the time with me today i really appreciate it okay love one of the really positive things for me is getting to meet folk that i never would have met otherwise (laughs) and aj comes into that bracket you know she's the kind of person that I probably wouldn't have bumped into, you know, and uh, now I count her as someone that, you know, I'm becoming friends with and I'm valuing hugely uh, that interaction. So great. I love the interview. I hope people benefit from it and I hope they comment on it. Yeah. And and making these connections like that, that's one of the most important things I think that we do. Yeah. Without a doubt. What have we got in the news, Mark? I don't know. I haven't posted much. No, you haven't. I've got a couple of things. I don't know if you spotted this. And um, this is relevant to an interview that we didn't put in the show, but we've put on Patreon with Jane Simpson. Do you remember the continent specialist? Oh, yeah. The Royal College of Nursing put out a statement criticising Tenor, who make um, basically incontinence pads, um, for normalising incontinence after childbirth in their advertising. Yeah, I, I, I've seen it. I kind of get it. It's something that I think maybe is, is a bit of a small, slightly taboo issue that people don't generally talk about at all. Really? Yeah. How many conversations do you have about um, tenor pads? Uh, not many about tenor pads, but quite a few about <laughs> incontinence. Yeah. But maybe that's because I'm a growing prostate and the fact I'm a midwife. Maybe, yes. <laughs> and and it's interesting that these pads, adverts for these pads, are definitely not aimed at men. No, definitely not. But there, is, I suppose there is. Is there a flip side in as much as um, the company are acknowledging there is an issue? Mm-hmm. So 
uh, maybe that we talk about is this normalizing the fact that people have incontinence or is it recognizing the fact that people have incontinence and seeking to serve those that are suffering certainly i'm sure they'd appreciate that way of looking at it um but i wonder if i'm not sponsored by tenor no and actually <laughs> in the statement from rcn it does say at the end tenor's silhouette advert inaccurately portrays that it is normal to be incontinent post childbirth that's one point um, that we might not necessarily agree with um define normal in this respect exactly. but also for um for not acknowledging that the, the, that there is treatment available well I, what so they they would be happy if at the bottom of the advert it said and of course uh, there is treatment available for incontinence if on the packaging perhaps it gave some good signposting if you need these you also should probably but why would they i mean this is like everything why would they want to encourage people to cure the condition they're making money out of i i know but i guess that didn't even cross their mind because within a within the marketing community i mean let's let's assume um that there is good intention and it's not just because they want to make money from us uh, although i i doubt you can assume that i am not going to <laughs> but let's assume that so a lot of marketing these days is is kind of geared towards this kind of pseudo altruism isn't it mm -hmm. so i i bet you if someone would have suggested we should partner up with people that that support these women with treatment and we should have links on our site with nurses talking about how to manage incontinence if they had thought of it they'd have done it yeah, because that would make them look better. Still not out of altruism. Well, of course not. But, uh, but you know, case sera, you know, that, yeah. that is the culture we live in. I bet you if, if the RCM went to Tenor, Tenor would say, well, give us a nurse specialist and we will video the hell out of that woman or man. Yes. Because that would really enhance our standing within the community. Yes. And they've done the positive thing of, of um, being criticised and therefore raising the issue. Nice. And, and of course, this kind of criticism is grist to the marketing mill. Indeed. Tell us the news about one-to-one -one midwives. Devastating news. I, 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 I was devastated. I was told about it by my stepdaughter who lives in Liverpool and had a baby there. And one of her friends had a birth that was not really very pleasant for her and had booked with the one-to-one -one midwives. Um, as is the case often, you know, women gravitate towards the one-to-one -one project in that area of the country because of a poor experience, right? And overnight, one-to-one uh, -one midwives were pretty much forced into a position where they had to liquidate or what, what do they call it? I don't know, go into administration. Yeah. And Rebecca explains the, the process by which this happened. So I won't go into that much before she's on and straighten her stuff. Um, but it's painful to me. Yeah. Um, because the one-to-one -one midwife scheme was offering a service that wasn't available anywhere else. So free at the point of delivery because the local commissioners paid for it. Women had all of their care with, um, the one-to-one, -one, mainly domiciliary, sometimes transferring in. And they got really good results. Their outcomes. Their audit outcomes are phenomenal. Mm -hmm you know, some would argue a self-selected group and all that kind of stuff if you want to look at the nuances of research. But in terms of outcomes, you know, we're, we're, we're talking of a cross-section of women with a, a range of pregnancies, you know, complicated pregnancies through to physiological, you know, going within the normal parameters of physiology. And their outcomes are phenomenal. 
can I just pick up on the self-selected group? Because I'm interested in this because I'm thinking that, that it's appropriate to self-select into that situation if we're looking at a, a low-risk pregnancy and a low-risk birth. And I'm not even sure those phrases are OK anymore. Um, and it's appropriate to not be selected into that group if you have more risk or more complications. That's what the, the hospital setting and the extra technology and extra um, supervision or whatever is is for. Yeah, well, my comment was more uh, a method, a lot of oh, research. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I'm... I, in as much as by virtue of them choosing the project, they become a homogenous group, don't they? Yeah, but we don't have to be saying if all women birthed in with, with this kind of system, then outcomes would change across the board. What we can be saying is that this, this system should be available for the people for whom it is appropriate. Amen to that. And, you know, different birth systems should be available for the people who need that. I'm with you. I, I was just uh, preempting, you know, predominantly my medical colleagues yeah um who would say yeah yeah but well, they, they need know. to they need to be a bit more aware of the nuance don't they <laughs> well, and, and let's be honest all generalizations are lies that was a lie <laughs> and that was a generalization oh conundrum before you get any more bogged down shall we listen to the interview bring it on So um, I'm Rebecca. I was a midwife at one to one midwife for six years until uh, that sadly came to an end on Wednesday when the company had to go into insolvency and everybody was made redundant. So I, I don't get it, Rebecca. A service that is ticking every better birth box designed around better birth has now well. ended. Can you, can you shed any light on what's gone on? Um, so one-to-one midwives came into being in 2010 um, and I think it's always been on the political agenda because it was a private provider that was paid using NHS money so there's always right. been that political landscape in terms of um, being an outside provider that are available to NHS patients yeah so historically there's always been a lot of um, hostility over money and who's paying for the care and that the hospital money was being diverted away from that service right. so that's been like going on for years and years and years and we run off um, one contract now or did run off one contract and that's re-procured every three years um, right. and we've got through the procurement process the last two times but it's it's been up to ten to the contract but this time um, it was all very different and the service was informed that actually they needed to start considering winding up because they weren't going to get the contract this time and that it needed to go back out to procurement for legal reasons to give everybody a chance to bid. Right. Um, so this was in March so that was the first sort of warning that maybe one-to-one -one wasn't going to be supported moving forward but the message from that was even if it's not one-to-one -one Northwest Limited it will be a different provider providing the same service spec and everybody you know should be fine and move across to new service. Yeah. So um, we were asked to stop taking referrals, which we couldn't do because it was a, it's a source of cash flow, which enables one-to-one yeah. -one to be able to pay its midwives and deliver the service. Yeah. After some backing from um, NHS England, that was overruled and we were able to continue trading and taking women as we have been doing. But yeah. on top of that, there was a court case looming with one of the trusts towards the end of the year. And then another trust said that they were going to stop 
seeing one-to-one clients. So they'd see them for emergency care, but any planned care, i.e. consultant care, scans, those kinds of things, they were going to reject referrals for those women until the provider-to-provider debt was settled. Mm -hmm. Um, And the provider-to-provider has always been a huge issue. So provider-to-provider is what the trusts charge one-to-one midwives for using their service. And as we know, the tariff that is provided for antenatal care doesn't really cover the sort of care that one-to-one midwives offers, let alone when you're then paying trusts to provide additional care for those women that need it. So these costs are getting higher and higher and higher. And it's what we would say is disputed debt because actually some of the costs could have been kept much lower than they were. Right. So the the invoices would go backwards and forwards in terms of, well, this is how much you owe us, and we'd say, well, this is how much we think it should really be. Yeah. Um, and that's where that disputed debt came from. So we had all these sort of financial issues going on in the background, plus this contract looming over the company. Um, and then when the, the procurement process went ahead, it was different, and people were asked to bid in lots. And this is all available on the CCG website. Right. But then what it appeared to be is that essentially everybody could bid for a lot in their patch which wasn't to say that once one midwives couldn't just bid for a lot in one patch but they might only get one patch so you couldn't then run the service in one small area when you'd been running it across and you wouldn't be at a business plan or anything well it was it was very different to what had ever happened before so again that was another warning sign that things Uh, changing yeah I, i i and you probably can't say this but this to an outsider looking in, it looks like an orchestrated um, plan to get rid of one-to-one midwives, and and it's distressing. I find it totally distressing, particularly when I mean, tell us just a little bit about your outcomes. Yeah, so um, obviously we care for women across the the spectrum of need, if you like. So that was women on a universal pathway and on an additional pathway. Um, we had about a 30% home birth rate month on month across the whole cohort of women that we cared for. For those women that birthed at home, they had really, really good outcomes. Our transfer rates were low. We had a really low prematurity rate, low stillbirth rate, all the things that Better Birth is designed to do. Yeah. We were doing, um, you know, when you say oh, the service was designed around Better Birth, but actually I say, well, Better Birth was designed around the service. So it's been a... Uh, been really sad and unfortunately the the focus has been financial not outcome based because if it had been yeah, outcome based you would still be happened. running I, and i think what's important to note from this conversation is that we're not talking about a company that has badly managed their money they've been put in a position where um, they cannot go forward because the goalposts have changed yeah and the the company is obviously a limited company it's, it's its own entity and the decision had to be made for insolvency because once you are insolvent as a business you can't keep trading so once people's wages can't be paid anymore and all those sorts of things it's yeah. you know you cannot continue trading and that's why it's been as, as sudden as it's had to be um because there's just every option's been exhausted after fight yeah. after fight after fight but yeah. when you've got you know a system that's committed to to not really helping you you can't yeah, can't go in i mean can i express you know from everyone you know me and karen at podcast and and for a large portion of our listeners i'm getting a bit emotional now um we love you and um we respect the fact that you were pioneers and i wish you all 
the very best, Rebecca. Thanks for being willing to talk. Cheers, Mark. Thank you. That means a lot. That was a very interesting interview and that's a real, really sad state of affairs. And we'll keep an eye out to see if there's any more news in that area. Uh, I know the founder of One to One Midwives um, and I've met her on a number of occasions. And she's offered to come on and do a, a pretty long form interview about uh, her career and how she founded One to One and, and how it's ended and what our hopes are for the future so that might be one for the patreon page i don't know oh, yeah that sounds really interesting that might be a little treat for our patrons i think so and i'm off up there to liverpool in a few weeks time and i'm going to train as many of the one-to-one midwives in the three-step rewind uh, method as a kind of a gift from Sprogcast. Okay. I, I felt that i felt that i kind of wanted to do something from us for them that's nice it is distressing for them and for the women they serve. So you just wanted to offer something from us, really. Yeah, that's cool. What has inspired you this month, Mark? We've already talked about it in a way, in as much as uh, I've been inspired in the context of the redirection of um, my training journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and keeping with tradition, uh, I'm inspired by a Netflix series. Okay, what what's the, what is it this time? It's a series that explores the. It's called Mind Hunter, uh, and it explores how the profiling service of the FBI formed through the interviewing of inverted commas famous serial killers. Oh, that does sound fascinating. Oh, it's fantastic. There's two series of it so far, and uh, it's I like it because of all the psychological stuff and you know all of that. And I'm gripped. So that's inspiring me. Oh, I'll have a look out for that. Have a look at it. You'll love it. it it's dry as well. So you'll love it even more. Okay. <laughs> I'm only joking. What about you? Um, being the summer holidays, I have to admit to not being very immersed in birthday stuff at the moment. So I wanted to mention what we did yesterday as a spontaneous day out when it was too rainy and too Sunday and too everything. And we just sat at the breakfast table going, what are we going to do today? We've got to wait for the Tesco delivery and then we're bored. And I said, let's go to the Hawk Conservancy Trust, which someone mentioned to me the other day. And um, it's down in Andover. And we went there and it was brilliant. What is it? Is it birds of prey? Yeah. Um, They do three flying shows throughout the day, and they've got lots of birds of prey in aviaries as well. And obviously they do a lot of good work on conservancy, and they have a bird of prey hospital. I think it's like the British bird of prey hospital where um, they go if they're injured. But during the flying displays, we experienced things like hooded vultures flying over, over our heads, like over our heads so that we had to duck. Wow, and that's huge grey owls just literally flying at you. In fact, um, my son was one of the, the volunteers to be a tree and stand <laughs> about a foot away from another child. And then this great grey owl flew between them. Wow. And it was really cool. Did your boy enjoy it? Um, hang on a second. Conrad, did you enjoy the Hawk Conservancy Trust? Yeah. You want to say a bit more than that? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's a teenager now. Can you tell? I meant Peter anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Pete liked it too. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fantastic. So it's it's in Andover or near Andover, and it's really good day out. So that's my thing. 
Nice. I think that's nearing the end of all we have time for today. Yes. And before you go on, we've got a little snippet from Millie Hill. I'm Millie Hill and I've written Give Birth Like a Feminist. And I think it's an important book because we all need to be looking at birth through a feminist lens. And you can get a copy of the book from any good bookseller online or otherwise. I like that. Hey, we've got the interview with Millie Hill coming up. It'll be in our next episode out on September the 25th. And she's talking about her new book, How to Give Birth Like a Feminist. Uh, Yeah, do let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter. I think I say it every time I'm on air, but we love hearing from you. Um, So get in touch. Um, That's facebook.com slash sprogcast and at sprogcast on Twitter. Also find us on Spotify, review us on iTunes and sponsor us on Patreon. That is all we ask. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye for me. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code sprogcast at the checkout.